everybody. Welcome back to the big show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets, episode 64. We are your hosts, Pastor Christopher Gillespie. Hey, 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 it's Easter. And I am pastor in good standing most of the time, Donovan Riley. Occasionally. Sometimes I even lay down. (laughs) This week on the show, we are going to leave Dr. Martin Luther behind and jump into another one of our favorites, Werner Ehlert, in Mm -hmm. a book entitled Eucharist and Church Fellowship. In the first four centuries of the church. Right. In the first four centuries of the church. Chapter six, Church Fellowship in the Local Congregation. Alert writes, we must first distinguish between local congregations and the whole church. Primitively, this distinction was without meaning, for the churches in Corinth and Thessalonica were not separate parts of a superior organization. As Rudolf Sohm has rightly put it, in each congregation, in each town, the church of God or of Christ is present in indivisible completeness. In theology or faith, this has never changed. The church of Christ is the body of Christ, and therefore, similarly, indivisible. Where the body of Christ is, there it is fully, and hence the church, too, is always fully there. The fact of the local church is not dependent on the construction of what would later be called a legitimate and ordered polity. It was there from the beginning. Paul already speaks of churches in the plural. He compares them with one another. For example, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 13, and Philippians 4, verse 15, as do Acts and Revelations. I just did it. I know you did. I just did it. Acts and Revelation. I was looking at the word Acts and then I was reading the word Revelation. We observe the simple fact of Christians living together in one place. They form a local unity and there, as they participate in their meetings, agapes, and other arrangements, it is all quite localized. And the koinonia we are looking for is experienced most immediately within these boundaries. We shall accordingly speak of local congregations or simply of congregations. Good. And again, that is Werner Ehlert, Eucharist and Church Fellowship. Eucharist and Church Fellowship. The other book that... um... I was just waiting for you to fill in the rest of the... Oh, in the first four centuries of the church. (laughs) There we go. Yes. The other text um, that we probably have encountered, uh, because it was CPH published, was, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, what was it called? The Structure of Lutheranism, which is kind of on the same theme in a way. By Ehlert also. Yeah, Yeah, by Ehlert. But but I think I was taught that Ehlert is supposed to be suspect by us. Right. Because he was Erlangen, he was German. Erlangen theologian, that's right. Those dirty Erlangen theologians. And I don't know what that suspicion was all about. Was it just that he was a liberal, you know? Yes, he was labeled a liberal, but so was Sazi. Mm, okay. As a professor at Erlangen before he jumped ship and moved to Australia. The other the other texts you could read from Alert in English uh, were published by Fortress Press, which mm-hmm. might not have helped too much. Uh, <laughs> mm. That would be the Christian ethos and the Christian faith. Uh, right. Some other texts. Well, oh. he wrote a short essay if you want to call it that, a novelette on law and gospel. Mm. And at least in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, it wasn't well received because of his treatment of the third use of the law. Fortress Press, 1967 in English. Yeah, law and gospel. So I think what you see with the Erlangen theologians is a suspicion about their teaching on the third use of the law. 
Mm-hmm. No surprise there. The LCMS is obsessed with this. And what? I don't know what you're talking about. Right. And then also this comes at a time, for those of you who don't know, this comes at a time, Eilert and Saze were teaching at Erlangen during the Second World War and mm-hmm. refused to become Nazis. They re, they refused to become brown shirts and, and become card-carrying members of the uh, Socialist Democratic Party. I mean, he started he started teaching theology in 1919 and he didn't right. retire until 53. Right. Died in 54. Right. So there is the politics of the Second World War swirling around. And for those of you who don't know, many theologians, especially professors at universities, became card-carrying members of the, mm-hmm. the, the Socialist Party, Democratic Socialist Party, the Nazi Party, just to keep their, their job and not go to jail. Right. Another, another famous uh, theologian uh, that comes up with this whole because of his assassination plot against Hitler was Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, yeah. who wasn't technically Lutheran, theologically Some, speaking. Sometimes lumped in with Lutheran, but uh, he would call himself what? Evangelical free or something like that? Something like that. He was uh, mentored by Karl Barth, very, very famous Reformed theologian. He's more Barthian than he is Lutheran for correct, sure. Correct. And I speak of this having read him thoroughly when I was a baby Christian in the evangelical church. Evangelicals love Dietrich Bonhoeffer. That should tip you off. Mm. <laughs> Not that that's bad inherently. I'm just saying, if if evangelicals find a lot worth quoting out of out of a Lutheran theologian, we should ask why and have that conversation at the very least. Yeah, or so what, that, or maybe just uh, pay attention to what they're quoting from him. Right, like they might go. quote and, Luther a lot, but uh, they're going to avoid, right. you know, on the on the Lord's Supper or well. <laughs> Baptism. Also, or... Herman Saze has a good critique of Bonhoeffer. They were contemporaries, they were mm. colleagues. And traveled in very similar uh, career paths, actually. Uh, both kind of wunderkind and uh, kind of marked early in their careers as being the future of the church in Germany. And traveled to America and did the circuit and so forth. Yeah. Bonhoeffer obviously went one direction, Saze the other, but. Um, so that's all in the air. Then you have Bod Bowl in 48, which was the merging of the Lutheran, Methodist, evangelical, free Lutheran churches into one big Evangelische Kirche in Deutschland mm-hmm. church. And that's when Sase jumped ship and tried to go with the, the Lutheran free churches. And that didn't really work out. So he ended up leaving for Australia. Whereas Ehlert stayed. So Ehlert, I mean, it seems, I mean, Ehlert's well-educated. He's, he, he knows what he's doing. He did serve as pastor. He was also a chaplain during World War I. So that's he was on right. the front. So that's pretty yep. cool. Um, but, uh, you know, he knows, he studied theology, philosophy, history, German literature, f- uh, psychology, and law. So he brings a lot of things to the table. But then it seems like once he starts teaching, he just kind of goes in the ivory tower, right? And that's how yeah. you avoid, you know, you're not writing in the newspapers. You're not, you're not being a public theologian. Um, right. You know, just kind of. Well, what do you do? Because we have three examples. You brought up Bonhoeffer and then Saze was also a mm-hmm. conscientious objector. And that really, if it wasn't for the the president of the university, he would have been canned and possibly arrested mm. by the SS. He was protected by guys like Ehlert. But then on the other side, you had uh, guys like Paul Althaus who were brown shirts, yeah. who turned their backs on these guys after the war as betraying their nation. And in, in the, as you also just said, a lot of these guys served in the trenches in World War One, yeah, and that seasoned their theology for sure. So you have seasoned war veterans who then, in the midst of a war, have to make the decision: where do I locate myself within this Nazi regime in Germany? Mm-hmm. And what then do I do after the war? Am I complicit by omission or commission 
in what the Nazis did. And we also have to remember, mo there were many people in Germany who did not know about the death camps, who were removed from it. For example, if you lived in an academic setting and you kept your head down and didn't pay attention, it wasn't like the Nazis were publishing on the front page of newspapers, the death camps. And yeah. And every day saying, we've killed this many Jews today. Yeah, and the documentation was uh, intentionally <laughs> right. not all that uh, complete. Right. Yeah. In fact, you can read this in, in the diaries of Martin Heidegger, for example, the philosopher. He went through this where he, he supported the Nazis. And then after the war, once he discovered what he had supported, it crushed him and he turned to mysticism and so forth. But mm. it, so it affected everybody differently. Bonhoeffer obviously was executed some say martyred for the, his part and he was tangentially associated with the assassination plot right to, right to blow up hitler but he was rounded up nonetheless and you have ehler you have you know you have sazi like i said you paul all these these theologians and it's easy i think to armchair quarterback these guys especially this far away from the original events hmm. but my attitude is you need to cut these people some slack yeah and if, if you disagree with their doctrine, why? <laughs> First of all, why? And second of all, have you given them a fair shake or are you judging them based on your politics or yeah. your polity, as yeah. Hillary brings up here in this, this section? And is it simply a matter of they didn't express this the way that you wanted expressed or were they truly denying something like the third use of law? Or, because I think a lot of times we end up talking past each other because you have your working definition of let's say sanctification in relation to third use. Right. And I have my working definition. And even though we're saying the same thing, we're tailoring our language to the context of our congregation. I'll use a kind of tangential example. In Hebrew, the literal translation of wrath is furious anger. Mm, okay. So I translate it as furious anger because people understand that. They don't necessarily understand what wrath means. They may have actually encountered someone that was furiously angry. Right. So in a, a sermon excerpt over the weekend, I had a, a, a colleague say, God was never furiously angry at us, which actually Romans 5 says that's exactly uh, God's furious anger toward us. And there's the conclusion to the Ten Commandments in the Catechism, the Bible. There are numerous instances where God's wrath against sinners is spoken of. I mean, you know, I almost feel like you need to intensify it even further. But <laughs> Right. But my point being is, because I didn't translate wrath is wrath and that's what he understood mm -hmm. and i translated as furious anger he said well no that's not that's not correct well actually according to the theological word book of the old testament according to my old testament professors according to everyone that i lean on rabbinical and christian that's exactly how you translate mm -hmm. that word yeah so we're saying the same thing though that's what i'm saying is like in essence we're saying the same thing. He's just right. saying, no, you're not saying the same thing because you're not saying it the way that I say it. Well, and then, you know, before we dig back into the text, I, I think it, two things maybe are worth noting is that he's he's very historical. Mm -hmm. um, so, he, yes, I mean, he's, like, he's going to source documents early, you know, the first four centuries of the church, uh, but he's also very textual. So, he, I mean, you're going yes. to the scripture and saying, what do the scriptures say? And it doesn't, right. I, I don't really, when I read this text, I mean, it's been a while now, I don't really feel like he has much of an ax to grind except for just mm -hmm. saying, here's how things were. I right. mean, you're never fully objective. I get that. Uh, but well, and he is writing this in the context of all of these German church bodies trying to integrate with each other. And we'll get into this when we get to the Koinonia thing, mm -hmm. because this has come up actually in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, very recently with the Koinonia Project. Sure. 
koinonia as it was framed for Ehlert, and what he's fighting against in this book is the idea was, or the, the, the assertion was, if we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, all of our theological problems will work themselves out in time. Yeah, we would say which that's is, getting the cart before the horse, right? Right. And I, having attended a ELCA congregation or ELCA seminary in the late 90s, early 2000s, when they were pushing for koinonia in the ELCA with Presbyterians, Methodists, and Roman Catholics, it was literally the exact same argument that was used. That if we commune together and we have table fellowship, all of our doctrinal differences will be worked out in time. But what matters most is that we are kneeling together at the Lord's table. That's true unity, despite our differences. And that's probably the most common understanding of the sacrament in American context too, yeah, in general. And the thrust of the whole book that we're reading here is Alert saying, as you said, you're putting the cart before the horse. It's actually the opposite, that trying to resolve our, our doctrinal differences will lead us by and by, if we resolve them, to fellowship. Mm -hmm. But you can't be in fellowship if you disagree on whether or not the body and blood of Christ are under the bread and wine. Well, there's also the the other aspect that, at least in the early church, you, you didn't really have monolithic church bodies. I mean, there right, was, as he points out, it was more local congregations. Well, and even if you did look bigger, I, I mean, the Bishop of Rome was not the only bishop. <laughs> right, and he got run out of Rome quite often, actually, by angry mobs and other people who didn't like him. He didn't have a lot of power. So, I mean, there were some free associations, so to speak, and when there were major doctrinal, um, you know, theological conflicts um, right. that needed to be addressed, and there were councils where mm -hmm. all of these, I mean, there really weren't church bodies. I mean, they right. were just overseers, you know, of local congregations that gathered. I think the closest you see in the early church is Augustine and the African bishops, mm -hmm. North African bishops, because they did have a unity of purpose and they had power as far as numbers and money. They yeah. were able to say to the Pope in Rome, send us the army or yeah. we're going to stop sending you money. Yeah. And so you end up with some principal cities where, the, right. where that, you know, whoever is the bishop there is really mm -hmm. kind of a bigger bishop, an archbishop, if you like. Right. You know, like whether in, it's Alexandria or yeah, Constantinople exactly. or Rome. Right. Antioch. Yeah. Antioch. Yeah. yeah. Some of those old cities. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention too. You know, if you're if you think it's suspect, if Alert's suspect, um, you know, one of our teachers is the translator here, um, who is uh, reliable and trustworthy. Uh, right, Dr. Norman, Norman Mabel. Norman yeah, Mabel. absolutely. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, he puts his endorsement on it by translating it. Really, right? Yeah, hundred percent. As does our brother John Pless. Mm, yeah, another professor in good standing that we enjoy. Yeah. So the first thing he addresses in this chapter where we start out at is the local congregation vis-a-vis -vis or versus the whole church. Is the local congregation also the whole church or is it something other? And Ehlert's point is whether you're in Corinth or Thessalonica, you're not separate parts of a superior organization, <laughs> but rather in each town, the church of God or of Christ is present in the indivisible completeness of that body. Mm. In theology or faith, this has never changed. The church of Christ is the body of Christ indivisibly. Where the body of Christ is, that is fully the church. And thus, the church is always there. Now, remember, this book is about the, the sacrament, the Lord's Supper. Yeah. So he starts from the, the starting point, the foundation of the entire argument in this book is the Lord's Supper being celebrated, actually, every Lord's Day and every holiday. Mm-hmm. 
and the body of Christ gather around the body and blood under the bread and wine. That's your starting point. That's your fellowship, your koinonia. Yeah, that's in the early chapters of the book where he outlines this is the, the apostolic right. practice. And Herman Saze covers this in This Is My Body, mm -hmm. same basic thrust, which is wherever the sacrament is, the, the whole church is present. You're yeah. not a part of a bigger organization or a bigger thing called the church. You're the church. Yeah, past, present, and future. Right. Angels yeah, and you're archangels, in fellowship with Abraham. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. So where the body of Christ is, and body of Christ, he means the sacrament. Where the body of Christ is, that's the church. The fact of the local church is not dependent on the construction of what would later be called a legitimate and ordered polity, mm. otherwise known as a church body. The church body does not make the church the church. The sacrament, Jesus' body and blood with two or three or more gathered around that body, that makes the church the church. I think this is super important mm. in the, in, cause we may do more than one episode on this book. If you're not celebrating the sacrament every Lord's day and every holiday, and that's what makes the church, the church, are you removing on purpose people's certainty that they are the body and they are a part of the, the, the church, as you said, angels, archangels, and all the company of heaven. Uh, I'm coming from a, uh, two congregations in a row that, that did celebrate the sacrament uh, on mm -hmm. every Lord's Day and feast days. And now in a setting where, where they don't, that's not been their practice. And, um, you know, I love the prayer offices and just mm -hmm. up front, I, you know, matins, vespers, um, even morning prayer, evening prayer. Um, no problem, actually. It's great. You know, is it, it's really just like a, what do you want to say? An extended length devotion. <laughs> sure. It's like the 12 inch dance remix or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, which is nice. Uh, but it if it, it's just very odd, especially to have like a, a setting um, where everything's oriented towards the sacrament. The core, mm -hmm. We call it the ordo, I guess, right? Right. Uh, and then to not celebrate the sacrament at the end, of the, that, that felt weird right away. I'm like, something's missing. Um, but it is right. also strange to gather on... Um, on the Lord's day and not have right. the sacrament. So I, you know, the ancient, or not ancient, well, actually ancient too, but even Lutheran practice was, yeah, you had prayer offices, but then they led to the to the sacramental office, right? So you might have matins and then have a divine service. Did, I don't know for sure. We have to go back and look this up. We may have actually read this book at the beginning of this podcast within the first 10 episodes. Because I, I seem to remember we had this conversation. About... But, which text? Um, just about Ehlert. About oh, Ehlert. Book. Okay. Right. But Ehlert in the beginning, I think it's actually in the introduction, points out that the Lord's Supper is not only the heart of the church, it's the heart of the divine service and therefore the heart of the Christian life. Mm. And if you remove it, you're like a body that doesn't have a heart. You just go limping along. Well, that's no good. Right? So think of the local congregation without the sacrament as being basically a man with a bad ticker, a bad heart. He just goes limping along. Oh, what What is the character in uh, Wizard of Oz without a heart? The Tin Man. Was it the Tin Man? Yeah. Yes, the Tin Man. Yeah. So your church becomes like the Tin Man. <sighs> and then it rains and he gets all rusty and he freezes up. <laughs> I guess we referred to Alert back when we did the episode on the Catechism Prayer Book, third article of the Creed, part one. Hmm. Uh, we referred to it. So we did discuss it on the show. That was episode 44. But... Um, hmm. Uh, it doesn't look like we have a separate alert episode. How did we overlook that? That's I don't I don't know. Maybe it was on our radar and we just got lost. Well, maybe it was, yeah. Maybe we talked about when we discussed Sazi too. Then we got lost in Galatians for <laughs> Lost in Galatians. That's right. <laughs> Some people get lost in Tuscany. We get lost in Galatians. 
So then Alert says they form a local unity. That is Christians living together form a local unity as they participate in their meetings, their agape, their love feast, and other arrangements. It's all quite localized. That is, it's tribal, it's clannish. The koinonia we are looking for is experienced most immediately within these boundaries. We shall accordingly speak of local congregations or simply congregations then. So in the early church, this phenomenon of the local congregation, like all that belonged to it, worship, organization, and discipline, went through many developments which we cannot pursue here. We must confine ourselves to the general categories in which its fellowship was exercised, insofar as there was some consistency. It is generally accepted that from the beginning, worship was the preeminent category. This does not assume liturgical uniformity, but one cannot conceive of a Christian congregation which does not meet to celebrate the Holy Supper and for common prayer, Acts chapter 2. These are exactly what makes a congregation out of a cluster of believers, what Luther calls a gemeine or a a versammlung, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The assembly. There are obvious differences between the Jerusalem congregation as depicted in Acts and that at Corinth. The rowdy competition in exercising the charismatic gifts of the spirit could scarcely have happened in Jerusalem. <laughs> they were a little bit uh, tighter laced, as they say. A little bit, right? A little <laughs> bit more laid, tight-lipped. It may well be that in Jerusalem, the expectation of the returning Lord was at first stronger than the certainty of the presence of the risen Lord. It is quite improbable that when the writer of Acts uses koinonia in his description of the life of the congregation in Jerusalem, he means the same as Paul does when he speaks of the koinonia of the body of Christ. Hmm. The koinonia of 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16 and following, however, does not exclude the koinonia of Christians among themselves, but much rather includes it. In every case, the congregation celebrating the sacrament is gathering around its Lord whether in Jerusalem or in Corinth. The common celebration of the sacrament in every local congregation is the basic criterion of its church fellowship, and yet not this by itself. Okay. So it's the center of the heart, as we said yep. before. Yep. It, it doesn't constitute the whole, but it, no. is, but it is the center, and it is the purpose right. for which the congregation gathers. And since my car broke down in, this morning, and it possibly being the alternator, the whole engine isn't composed of the alternator, and yet without the alternator, the whole engine doesn't work. Yeah, it, it really does kind of run the ship, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Or the engine in that case. Right. I, I, I appreciate um, the precision that Alert takes here to say, look, when you read the word koinonia, it doesn't mean the same thing necessarily everywhere. Right. Right. So that's important to note the way St. Luke uses it in the book of Acts mm-hmm. versus the way Paul uses it in Corinthians. But... Uh, but then I, I like how he says, well, Paul uses it uh, maybe in a, a very specific way in Corinthians, but it actually then, but it includes the way that Paul uses it in, in Acts, or excuse me, Luke uses Luke, it in Acts. Right, no, 100%, which is, yeah, one is more of a charismatic, The gathering together community. of right. people. Right. And the other one may be more conservative and more tight-lipped and more repressed as a community, right. but what's the center? It's the same. Well, for those listening who don't know Greek, I mean, I really appreciate that Dr. Nagel left it as koinonia yes. um, because it is it is a very technical term. Uh, right, 100%. But like the way Paul uses it in Corinthians, it's a participation in the yeah. body of Christ, right? Is how he right. tra- how it gets yes. translated sometimes, which right. like, 
uh, is that exactly <laughs> right the nuance of it well but, it almost makes me wonder if paul didn't have this conversation with luke early on hmm. because since they did travel together right and they yeah. is is does that inform because as we've we've talked about a lot on this whenever we talk about luke the importance of table fellowship in luke's gospel it's big yeah it overrides almost everything else that's happening in the gospel who do you eat with yeah yeah. And then you read First Corinthians and Paul's addressing of table fellowship and participation in the body of Christ in Corinth, very similar, very yeah. similar. Yeah, and then the way that the, the church in Corinth wants to import um, pagan, you know, uh, ritual yeah. meals into, yeah, the, into the sacrament, yeah. And how that's not appropriate. That, right. Yeah. And actually but fellowship point, dividing. R- yes, exactly. And... We talked about this, I do believe it was in the last episode, I was just listening to this in the car, of you can try and do top-down reform, corporate Mm. type Mm -hmm, of reform, mm -hmm, where mm -hmm. the guy in the head office, so to speak, whether it's President Harrison, our Senate president, or the CEO of a corporation, whatever the organization may be, whatever it does, top-down institution of a tribal identity, a clan identity, it never works. Because that tribal identity, that clan identity is not only, it's old, it's mm-hmm. it's generations old and, and it's established through bloodlines, but also it is geographic and it, it there's a whole ethos that goes along with the clan's identity, with tribal identity, that a corporation simply can't instill writ large. You know, if you're located, let's use the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate since this is a Lutheran podcast. It, you can say things in St. Louis and then pass them down to the different districts in the different states. Mm. But then you have the district presidents who will take that and interpret that or spin it or mandate it, however. Or just know, ignore it. Or just ignore it, depending on where their sympathies lie, politically speaking, or even theologically. And then it has to go to the local congregations and the pastor and the pastor to the elders and the council and then to the congregation. A lot can happen in that that whole well, chain there's so of so many gatekeepers. Right. Versus tribally, you have the village elder. You have your warrior class, and then you have your your peasants. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not, the ones that support the warriors. We go out and hunt and gather mothers and children, right? I mean, right, mothers and children and old people is what it is. Yeah, and you still see this to this day. Go to Afghanistan, go to Central Africa, to the Congo, go to the Amazon rainforest, mm-hmm. and tribal societies are all organized the exact same way. So if you want to argue that all of these are cultural constructs, well, no, they're not. Because, well, experience proves they're not. Right. There is a hierarchy. It's built in to the creation, we would argue. Call that the law of nature or natural law. But you can't enforce that writ large. It has to be, as uh, the book Tribe by Sebastian Junger points out, tribal societies work best when they're limited to 50 to 150 people. Well, What's the average size of the local congregation in the Lutheran Church, Missouri? Senate? I think it's 67 or something like it that. It is actually, yeah. Yeah, exactly. 65, mid 60. And yet, so the corporate says we need bigger churches, bigger congregations, more money, more projects, more ministries, more opportunities. Tribally speaking, historically speaking, and, and I think Ehlert's really tapping into this, whether he's aware of it or not, congregations function best when they're 50 to 150 people. Uh, uh, even be above a hundred people, they start to kind of shake apart because right. you can't enforce a code of conduct and ethos and ethic on more than 50 to hundred people. You start to lose track of people at a certain point because of just the numbers. Well, and then we were talking about this before we went on air, but there's that very practical dimension where I got this from an uh, Eastern uh, Orthodox 
priest, I guess they go by. And he was saying, uh, there was a question there. His congregation was getting to the point where they were at nearly capacity for what the mm -hmm. room could hold, right? At, oh, at yeah. one gathering. And the question was posed to him, well, um, you know, what are you going to do? Would you, mm -hmm. you know, add another service? And they're like, no, there's one, we have one service. Because we have one congregation. We have one congregation. He said, if we had a second service, we'd have two congregations. Two congregations. Very yes. insightful because, I mean, I've been in Lutheran congregations where, yeah. you know, there's the 830 crowd, there's the 11 o'clock crowd, yes. right? And they and they really, and the two shall very infrequently meet. <laughs> yeah, no, 100%. And to your point, and we've talked about this a lot, when I first got here, the first thing I did is I got rid of the two services and combined them into one because we had 24 at one service and mm -hmm. 18 at the other. And I said, we have two congregations. We don't have one. Yeah. And when it was argued against, I said, okay, what did we do at the 830 service? Silence. And then I said to those at the 830 service, what did we do at the 10 a.m. service? Again, silence. All they could agree upon is what they ate for breakfast in between the two services. And uh, Missouri Synod's you know, th this was the common practice for us too. If they, if we got too large, or or if we just desired, um, we'd start a mission congregation, right? Move to the next town over, or, absolutely, yeah, uh, or or gather those who are in that town mm -hmm. rather than trying to attract them to yourself. I mean, I think this tribal thing um, also has played out maybe in our setting where, like you said, the synod tries to do too much, right? Where it tries to to give a corporate identity. We talked about that in the last show. Right. Um, but also where the tribes then end up at odds with one another. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And and then, or even members within the tribes are doing this compare contrast and saying, right. well, we do it this way, you do it that way. And then there's these judgment. And right. in the end, um, the, the question ought to be, as Ehlers pointing out, um, do you gather around the Lord's gifts, namely his sacrament, the sacrament of the altar? Exactly. And that's what I was going to bring around to you is that really what koinonia is, is an ethos. It is a code of conduct, so to speak, mm -hmm. especially in 1 Corinthians. That That's what Paul's saying is, here's our ethos. The body of Christ, the ethos, the code of conduct for the body of Christ is our shared confession of the truth of the resurrection. Every time you eat my body or eat this body and drink this blood, you confess the Lord's death till he comes again. Mm -hmm. This is how you proclaim Christ crucified. <laughs> right. In fact, for those of you listening, if you want to study this for yourself in a very simple way that doesn't take a lot of energy or money, go check out Tribe by Sebastian Junger. Like I just said, it's a really fast read. It's really good. And also The Afghan Campaign by Stephen Pressfield. The Afghan Campaign is about Alexander the Great's campaign in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And he does a wonderful job of explaining tribalism, especially in Afghanistan, which persists to this day. And as Stephen Pressfield says, Afghanistan today, the tribalism in Afghanistan today, especially with uh, the Taliban, he said it's tribalism on steroids. That's what really Islam is in Afghanistan. Islam mm -hmm. is just tribalism on steroids. Mm -hmm. Because if you go back to the Afghan campaign, which predates, quote unquote, the Christian church, the Gentile Christian church, and it predates Islam, they're having the same war and yeah. they're fighting the same battles on the same piece of earth. Once you add Islam to this this tribalism, like I said, Stephen Pressfield is just like, yeah, it's just tribalism on steroids. But it's the same practices actually before and after. Well, you you add a whole religious dimension to it. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It was there before, but the rigorousness and the discipline of Islam takes that theocracy that was already there pre-Islam and just jacks it up to 11. Well, it, it doesn't just become the priority. It becomes the Right. Really, they're all. I mean, that's the what impetus, it's all about. Yeah, yeah. for everything. Uh, and both of those texts are, I mean, they're really not entirely negative about about tribalism. I mean... It, no, actually, they, in a way, they espouse the 
the goodness of it, the, right. the helpfulness, the the vitality of tribalism, because right. the the survival of the clan means we all have to rely on each other. We all have a role, right? And we've been, I mean, we, I know we've been negative <laughs> towards uh, what do we call it, like toxic tribalism. I think in the last show, right? I mean, where well, we talked about it for sure. Where you, get, you toxic tribalism, like an example would be the mafia, mm -hmm. the Taliban, terrorist organizations, white supremacist groups, sure. Even fundamentalist Christian churches like, um, what's the Baptist church again? Oh, hey, uh, <laughs> well, uh, Westboro Baptist. Westboro, yeah. That, that would be, and that's actually mostly just a family. Mm -hmm. You want to talk about toxic tribalism, that's a perfect example. Well, it's when one tribe, in the case of like our Christian context, wants to wipe out the other tribe. Yes, like we're exactly. going to undermine, um, you know, your fellowship right. down the street. And right. Whereas to say, you know, I mean, I'm an ecumenist or ecumenical, if you like. I mean, I'm hopeful that mm -hmm. <laughs> that the uh, Holy Spirit will work um, reform of heart and doctrine, so that so that we can actually um, gather together uh, right. in a greater sense than we have. Um, I'm hopeful. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm a little skeptical too at the same time. Mm -hmm. But that's the the actual reality. I mean, we're not after each other's throat. I mean, we disagree sometimes vehemently, even with other right. Lutherans, um, and and we need to actually right uh, yes yeah. you know doctrine is life is, that faith you know, may be proved yeah. to be true uh and, and we're not gonna fake it you know and, and say mm -hmm. well we're gonna have i don't know what do they call them ecumenical services is that what right fake it till you make it yeah and you fake it till you make it well we'll just gather and we'll act as if we're all on the same team and even though we really don't believe that individually or, or corporately um, yeah so, i mean that's part of the challenge here is to say um i don't agree with you but I also recognize you celebrate the sacrament and you believe it. Right. Um, now, where that isn't the case, that's when we, I think, when we start to get a little bit. Uh, right. Uh, how do you want to say? It's like, I, I just can't. I can't get on the page. I actually think you're being destructive to the church. Right. I was going to say the, the well, we can, well, let's hope for the best. Let's do it, but hope for the best. That's the fake it till you make it ethic versus mm. don't fake it till you make it, face it till you make it. Yeah. That's really what Ehlert's arguing here is, let's not pretend we don't have differences that divide us. Let's face those differences head on, mm. have the conversation and admit, maybe we just can't be in fellowship with each other. Maybe the differences are too broad to bridge. Right. And, you know, our Lutheran confessions are clear about this. Uh, show us show us where we are in error. We, we're not, um, we're really not ever... We are definitive, but we're also op uh, willing to be questioned, mm -hmm. right? Right. Open to challenge, right. right? Challenge this doctrine. That was our. That was the whole thing with with Rome. You know, show mm -hmm. us where we're wrong. Uh, right. here's, here's what we're reading in the teachers. Here's what we're reading in the scriptures. Right. Show us where we're wrong. And um, but they also emphasize, as you were saying earlier, you know, it's enough for church unity that we agree on preaching right, of the, the gospel. gospel and the yeah the and, administration of the sacrament, namely this, the Lord's Supper, <laughs> right? Right. right. Uh, and then we, so, so we try to distinguish and break, you know, make all mm -hmm. sorts of, mm, I don't know, right. walls and barriers. Augsburg, and, seven, Augsburg seven's not enough. We have to go to the epitome and the solid declaration. <laughs> and right. that's not enough, you know, and on and on and on versus let's start simply. Who is worthy and well prepared to come to this? Mm -hmm. He who believes these words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, as the catechism explains. Let's start from that and then work our way out into the broader conversation. But as Herman Sazi points out in an essay, the Lutherans amongst all the Christians were renowned for their capacity to sit down at the table with anybody 
and have a conversation. Yeah. Like they were well known for being ecumenically minded. And then in the United States, and again, think of the immigrant population um, that we've talked about in the past too. When you immigrate to this country, you speak a different language, you have different customs. Everyone wants you to basically give up everything that is your identity as a group and integrate. And this is why every generation of immigrants faces xenophobic mm -hmm. and, and bigotry yeah. and, and negativity. And because it's the demand of why can't you just adapt and integrate into society and be like us? Yeah. Well, do you come from a theocracy? Uh, do you come from a very tight-knit society where your customs and your traditions and your language really give you your group identity and therefore your individual identity? Right. It's not so easy, right? Right. To just change your clothes and start talking English or American, actually, to be specific. <laughs> Speak American. Um, versus what ends up happening then is in the American context, we have immigrant populations coming in. This tribalism is exaggerated, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Because they live in neighborhoods. You think of New York at the turn of the last, of the 20th century, you have the Italian neighborhood, the, the Irish neighborhood, the Russian neighborhood, so forth and so on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you go one block either way and all of a sudden there's different languages, different foods being cooked. Everything's different. It's very tribal. And yet the United States is this experiment where for the first time in history, we're basically going to take all of these tribes that used to kill each other and force them to live together in the same borough in New York City or in the Midwest or in right. the West Coast or right. something. Right. And then we're sitting here scratching our head about conflict. Like, wow, why all these conflicts? Why all these different gangs? Why all these things happening? Right. Well, this has never been tried before and here's why. So I think, you know, if I sound like I'm confused about, um, I don't know, is it a dichotomy between um, fellowship and, and ecumenism? Maybe. Uh, I'm, why am I confused? Because we're in a very strange kind of setting, actually, right. a unique setting where where these um, lines that divide churches mm -hmm. uh, are complicated. They're not just doctrinal. They're well, they they run right through people's houses. Yeah, I mean, they're ethnic. Where we're at, they're, they're village. They're village based. Um, they're language based. Right. And so navigating that now in in our context and actually we have like kind of ecumenical movements um some of these large social movements like the me too sure. or yeah uh, right where we're going to kind of unify around something hmm, simple right um uh, but <laughs> or lgbtq i suppose would be another one where you just try to latch a bunch of things together and, and try mm -hmm. for a common goal it's not so easy to actually bring those sort of people you know a yeah, right. Very, very diverse group of people together, even right. around a common goal, uh, apart from maybe, let's say, a national tragedy or something. Right. Well, we are wired, I would argue, anyways, we're hardwired to take up, as Jordan Peterson says, the heaviest weight we can bear. Mm, okay. That's really the purpose and goal of life is to carry the heaviest weight you can to struggle, uh, especially to struggle with and for others. That is the nature of a clan. That is the nature of family, mm. is to struggle together, to work together, to live and eat together, table fellowship. And once that is removed, that then is the end of the clan, is the end of the family. For example, when you have sons, they grow up, they get married, their wife takes their last name. Your, you as a father now, your name is carried on into perpetuity. Mm -hmm. If you have a daughter though, your name is is erased. So it's no small thing to have sons versus daughters in tribal societies. Right. Likewise then, as you and I have both encountered in our ministries, maybe one member of your congregation is married to someone who goes to a Roman Catholic church 
or a Methodist congregation or as a Baptist, and they have figured a way to make it work for the two of them. The spouse goes to the Baptist church and the other member goes to the Lutheran church. Or they alternate. Or they alternate, and then their kids grow up alternating, Mm -hmm. and then... Easter, they come to the Lutheran church, but for Christmas, they go to the Baptist church. Well, at the Baptist church, everyone's allowed to come to communion, but then at the Lutheran church, the pastor says, we don't believe the same things. No. And in a, in a pastoral evangelical way, I try not to say, you deny the body, and therefore, you're basically calling Jesus a liar by saying it's not the body and blood under the bread and wine. And so I can't in good conscience admit you to the table with us because you're not actually in fellowship with us. Right. Yeah. But the 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 consequences that people very quickly suss out that I think everyone listening has probably experienced at one time or another is, so you're saying I'm not a Christian then. And so I was thinking about like, when can we get people on the same page? And how right. can we actually break down these barriers? And it, it seems Read to me- Read Ehlert's book. Everybody. We have reading of this book. It seems to me the only time where this actually uh, has been successful is when the church, quote unquote, you know, broadly speaking, Christians on earth have mm-hmm. faced a really significant threat. So yes. maybe Arianism Struggle. or or Islam, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah, but false teaching in particular yes. or, right. you know, uh, or some pagan, um, which is another form of false teaching, but some kind of, yeah. you know, intrusion or some, right. some, they actually had to rally together just to live. Right. Or a war, or a plague, mm-hmm. and, but most of the time, um, there just isn't enough reason actually to right. try to deal with the doctrine. Right, get along, go along. Mm. That's all we want. Just get along, go along, Pastor. We just all want to get along, live and let live. Yeah, you know, so, use your platitude here. And again, I think that's I think that's the particular challenge then in the American context, where I mean, that's the central. That's a central ethic. Right. Uh, that, that is for d- sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, a melting that's pot it's and very intentional. A melting so. pot, I was just going to say, that's the American melting pot. That's the fondue. Let's throw 15 different kinds of cheese in the, <laughs> in the pot and what does it come out? It's just a big glob of uh, cheese. Just stir it together and add some wine. Right. Okay. And a, more than any other place that I've ever been, when I lived in Mexico, this was not a problem. Protestants and Roman Catholics would never have table fellowship. Mm, okay. When I was in Central America, the same thing. Mm-hmm. Protestants said of the Roman Catholics, you're a bunch of black magician pagans. The Roman Catholics said, you guys are a bunch of slappy, clappy pagans. You're not Christians. Mm-hmm. It was very, mm-hmm. the, the the lines. And so the north side of the town, Roman Catholic, south side of the town, Protestant. And you never intermarried where I lived at, Mexico and Guatemala. You would never even dream of dating a girl from the other side of the tracks. Because, because you would li- Yeah, you're starting with it. a high degree of hostility already in the family. Then. High degree of hostility. <laughs> Between the two right. families. And, yeah, yeah. And in really traditional cultures, such as Afghanistan, for example, you can be killed. Mm. Period. Because you bring shame upon your whole family. Mm. And this goes back thousands of years. So that's my point is the, the church being tribal, just read the Old Testament, for example, these practices go back thousands of years. And they're not just the thing we do on the Sabbath day. They're the thing that gives us our identity because God locates himself mm-hmm. in the center of this event. He is the event. Yeah. So to get rid of the Lord's Supper, for example, is to get rid of God himself, thus to strip us of our identity, to strip the clan of its identity. What well, you lose, well, maybe you don't lose your reason for gathering, but 
as we talked about before we went on air, something else will have to take its right. place then. God hates a vacuum, as does nature, so therefore something will fill that spot. Right, so you will you will ground your identity together as a community around something. Right. I mean, maybe it's maybe it's one of your ministries. I was gonna say it's a cult else. of personality maybe. Yeah, it could be the, the actual pastor, it could be um, what? I don't know. A You're... family, an elder of the congregation, like you said, a ministry, the kids, we worship our youth, that's a big one. Or um or could be genre or, you know your liturgical tradition could be the thing yeah that absolutely takes the place. that's like right we have, we have a band we're a contemporary church right you know, that kind of thing yes yes whereas i mean we, we would say that's majoring in the minors and say well how mm -hmm. you worship isn't isn't our first thing here we're actually going to go to right. why what are you right. gathered around who are you gathered around how is he delivered to you and then yeah. the other things will work its way out right i mean architecture uh, art right. music I mean, even some of the practical dimensions, like what time and where and how, these right. things work its way out if you know what's at the center of it all. That's a great point. Maybe that's the most important point of this hour is if you lose the center, you tear the heart out, all of this other stuff becomes the thing. Hmm. How you dress, how you behave, what you do, when you do it, how you do it, why you do it, these all become the central point. Hmm. Hmm. And that will eventually result in the death of the congregation. Right, because it, as far as a, a you've literally I taken the lifeblood away. Yeah, and your corporate identity then is, if anything, weak. Yeah, if even definable. Right, and right. May not even, you may not even be able to tell somebody, "Hey, you know what we do? Um, <laughs> ordinarily, uh, regularly, mm -hmm. this is what happens, and right. uh, and it's good for me because uh, Jesus says so." You know, one of the most important transitions that Alexander made during the Afghan campaign is he then he said to all of his soldiers, your girlfriend, your fiance, your wife, that is the local woman that you've taken up with, she is now considered a part of your oikos, your house, which means she will get half of your pay and will then be given all of the rights of a Macedonian. Mm -hmm. And he did this because he said, we keep fighting these people and it just makes them their resolve just gets tougher and stronger. So let's flip it. Instead of driving them to fight for the enemy against us, let's incentivize them to be a part of the Macedonian army, not a part of the Afghan tribal culture that's warring against us. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it 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 kind of worked. The only problem was when they left, they didn't kill the women because the women left with the, their soldiers. They killed their whole family. Mm-hmm and burned their villages to the ground. So it was this, these people, these women in particular were trapped in between the Macedonian yeah, army and the men they served. Yeah. And these, yeah, exactly. And yeah, it's very interesting, very interesting mm -hmm. to, to read about and study the history of tribal culture. Well, it is interesting. Let's, I mean, you, um, uh, path of least resistance, right? I mean, that, that's mm -hmm. what you're talking about. You made it easier to just join than, than to fight. Yes. And uh, that, I think that's one of the, probably central principles of, of evangelism, at least for me, the things that I right. think about is to say, what's to prevent this person from being a part of our fellowship? And that's what right. we need to deal with, right? right. Just and get right after that. I was, yeah, exactly, going back to that same analogy, because you brought it up, it just reminded me of this. So the other thing that he, that Alexander did is he would just pay tribes. Be like, hey, if you come and ride in my cavalry, here's how much we'll pay you. We'll double what I pay my own, my, the rest of my cavalry, I'll give you double. Plus whatever spoils you get along the way. They, he incentivized warriors to join his side against the other tribe down the road because they're saying, well, we've been at war with that other tribe for hundreds of years anyways. And yeah, we don't like you guys, but you pay better. 
So we'll go to war against them. So that was one part of this then is, yeah, there are some people that can be brought in Mm -hmm. for sure that you can maybe make them sympathetic by being kind to them, by incentivizing this and offering X, Y, and Z. But on the other hand too, what he did is he built roads into all of these mountain valleys so that these villages had access to trade and commerce. And over the winter, those mountain villages, those mountain tribes, they tore up all the roads that, that the Greeks had built because they didn't want access to commerce. They didn't want to integrate with these other tribes Mm. because they were free. (laughs) They were free to live according to their customs and within their own clan. And they didn't want to be interfered with by the outside. For them, that was a loss of freedom. So you see this in ministry then. There are just certain people, they do not want to come to church or they don't want to integrate and become a member of the congregation. They'll come and go, but they're still hostile toward you or what mm, you represent mm, for mm. some historical event, some historical action that was some wrong that was done to them by right. a member of the church or a former pastor. And no matter how nice you are to them, no matter how welcoming, no matter how kind you are, there's no incentive that is going to bring them. I have a woman, she comes and drops her three daughters off for, for Sunday school, mm. but she won't come to church. And there's a, there's a past, there's a historical slight Sure. That was done to her that predates me. So she she likes me. She likes the Sunday school. She likes everybody at church. And so she's willing to let her daughters be brought up in the Sunday school and, and come to church here. But the bridge for her to come, it does, it's not there. Something mm-hmm. burned it. Mm-hmm. And so no matter what I do, no matter what Sunday school does, doesn't matter what her daughters say, there's still that gap. There's still that unbridgeable space to get her to the table. You know, and we've talked about this probably uh, more than once on this show, but probably one of the hardest things to to defend is really what, what Ehlert would show is, is an ancient practice that in order for you to commune with us, you agree with us. Right. Not just about what the sacrament is, although right. that's that's essential and that's central. Right. Uh, but but actually, you agree that my my confession is your confession. You're my pastor. Right, 100%. This is these are my people. I believe right. what you believe, and uh, and so where we kind of shortchange that, I think practically mm-hmm. speaking, or congregations that have done that, even in our own fellowship, uh, you you see it play out where they actually just kind of lose their moorings. Yeah, and uh, it's really hard to even say, well, what part? What? How are you even a Lutheran? Like when yeah. you talk to a member of that yeah. parish. Because they don't know anything. They right. can't even defend the faith that they supposedly believe. So I, I think, I mean, that's a hard thing to talk about because you make it sound like you're trying to keep me from receiving the sacrament because you're making me yeah. go through 10, 12, you know, two years, three years of instruction before mm-hmm. you receive it. Say, no, 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 this is for your good. Right. Uh, uh, you know, that one, you can read the sac- receive the sacrament to your hurt and harm. But, but actually more than that, really, right, that you can... Um, we we really want you to see this right. as as your tribe that that I'm your right. pastor. This, these are your people, and mm-hmm. that you can care for one another, right? Um, without assuming that you're all on the same page, and right. which gets gets us into hot water. Which usually. brings us back to the book. Mm-hmm. The motive that underlies and prompts the foregoing is agape, or specifically brotherly love. Right there, it is. Romans twelve verse ten, First Thessalonians four verse nine, Hebrews thirteen. Verse 1, the koinonia is not merely being with one another, but also for one another, for all the members of the congregation. There it is, what you're just talking about. Right. It is brotherhood. 
the brother is not to be harmed, not to be taken advantage of in business, nor to be allowed to suffer want, let alone to be hated. Brothers and sisters are interchangeable names for the Christians. Brothers they and greet, saints. Right. Oh, brothers and saints. When I say brothers and sisters? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Brothers and saints are interchangeable names for the Christians. They greet one another with the holy kiss. Or we just shake hands and look at the ground. Mm -hmm. The strength of their ties with one another is matched by the strength of the boundary they draw to the outside. That is literally the definition of tribal Absolutely. identity. That is 100% tribal identity right there. In business dealings with one another, they do not choose an unbeliever to arbitrate. They transact their business, quote, before the saints and between, quote, brother and brother. One is to throw in one's lot with those who fear the Lord consider their common good, and daily visit the saints face to face. Hmm. There it is. There it is in a nutshell, what you were just talking about. It's not that you just show up. Yeah. But rather, you're not just with us, but you're part of us. And, you know, that, especially amongst the millennials and the Xers and, you know, the generational problem where we have, I don't know about you, but certainly for me, uh, just looking for something more like what oh so much right it, it can't just be like i show up i get what i wanted or what mm -hmm. i needed and then i check out for a week i mean I, I don't have the energy for that individually not even as a pastor just as a lay person i i don't want to be a part of something that's just it doesn't really constitute any part of my identity um right it it only it's like a goods and service kind of thing. I just I, I just get what I want out of it. And if I'm not getting what I want out of it, I'll go just go find another one that gives me what I want. Yeah. It's, it's so shallow um, that, you know, in times of testing, you right. fall away, I guess, is how right. the Bible would say it, right? Well, what to your point then, you look for a, a gathering, a group that, at least in my, what I was looking for is something that embodies honor, integrity, mm -hmm. courage, and brotherhood. Yeah. That is, as I've said before, my definition of friendship is if you won't bleed for me and with me, you're not my brother. You're definitely not my friend. That doesn't mean you get along, right? I mean, oh, no. I Yeah, no, 100%. You get along with people. You're friendly towards people. You're respectful towards people. Even those you don't respect, you're still respectful towards. Because again, you, um, you yourself seek to embody and manifest these traits, honor, integrity, courage, brotherhood, respect, humility, the warrior ethos is what I'm talking about. And so that's where I sought out these things I was looking for because sadly, I didn't really find them in the church. Mm. But as you noted earlier, the reason I didn't find them is because I didn't find the shared struggle. Right. Now, I found these things in Mexico. I found these things as a missionary in Guatemala because there was a shared struggle. There was shared poverty. And in their poverty, they were wealthy because their identity was not grounded in material goods and services, but rather in their fellowship as Christian brothers, as saints, as Ailer points out. Yeah. We share a common struggle. And if I have a bag of chips, I'm not going to sit in the corner and hide and eat that bag of chips because I know you're all starving. I'm going to give each of you chips. I'm going to share with you. Even if it means I have to go hungry, I'll give it away. Mm -hmm. Versus here, which is, well, I'm just here to get for myself what I need and then I'm going to go back home. Right. Which would be the opposite of these things. So for me... I found it in my my discipline, and this goes to the whole uh, righteous pagan um, that we've talked about, the, mm -hmm. the character attributes of the righteous pagan, and yet 
the to find the bridge back in to find that the overlap at the cross between the two kingdoms or the three estates however you want to say it i think that's really what's lacking is a lack of honor and integrity a lack of courage and brotherhood the things that ailer is actually pointing out in this paragraph which they're not the thing as you pointed out but rather they are the fruit of the thing right right that paul will point out the fruits of the spirit are kindness and long suffering and forgiveness and agape and philia mm -hmm. these are the, these are fruits of the spirit right and so at the same time that our flesh fights against the fruits of the spirit they will still be manifest amongst us because the spirit will overcome the flesh has overcome the flesh well and i think the thing that probably is most challenging for us is that the tribe is defined not by the th kind of things we would define tribes by. So ethnicity, yeah. language, um, right. maybe age group, uh, I don't know, right. dress, apparel, I, whatever it is, the ways mm -hmm. that we distinguish. Those are all external things, notice. Mm -hmm. Those are all external things, not internal things. Right. So, I mean, the, the real challenge of the gospel and the New Testament teaching of the church is that, you know, there is Jew, neither Jew nor um, right. Gentile. I mean, that... that the Holy Spirit gathers together as brothers, mm -hmm. um, people who aren't necessarily like each other at all, right? But but gathered around, in in Ehlert's point, around the sacrament, mm -hmm. around the forgiveness of sins, which is the same for everyone, mm -hmm. regardless. And they are joined individually as distinct, but yet one in the body, right? That is Christ, right? Well, it was interesting. Uh, we're recording this today after Resurrection Sunday, and for Bible study before church, we read from Luther's Easter sermon and talking about the road to Emmaus and in the breaking of the bread he was revealed to them and then he was gone and Luther makes this great point when they when Christ is present in the body there is comfort and there's consolation mm -hmm. but as soon as he leaves their presence he says these words the cross falls upon them yeah that is they cry out my lord my lord where did you go mm -hmm. have you abandoned us when Christ is with you and you are focused on the body he is present and there's comfort. As soon as you turn away, the cross falls on you again and you ask, where have you gone? Yeah. And his promise is, I am with you always. Always, exactly. So the real question then that we ought to ask is how? Yeah. Yeah. How is he promised yeah. to be with us? Yeah. We know why, mm -hmm. because apart from him, we have no life. We are right. distraught. We're in terror of our sin, mm -hmm. you know? And so he, that's why he's with us. Uh, he's promised to be with us for right. our comfort and hope and, and forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And how does he deliver that? How does, how does right. he come to us? You know? Well, and that's the thing too, for me anyways, when we talk about these internal, these traits that you can cultivate because they're not specific to the Christian church, which is honor, integrity, courage, brotherhood. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The thing though that overlays those traits is forgiveness of sin in Jesus's name, agape. Sure. True agape. True agape is bringing your brother and sister to the Lord's table. True agape is bringing that child to be baptized. True agape is saying, I see that you're carrying the heavy, this heavy burden. Would you like to lay your burden down? Because yeah. I know someone who bears it for you. Think about the the psychic, <laughs> psychic energy, not, not in terms of um, like you can reading the future to, tea leaves episode. yeah exactly or talk to the dead but in terms of you know <laughs> the psyche you know yeah just how how it weighs upon you when there's an unresolved tension when there's been sin committed right. against right. you or that you've committed and and it's unforgiven and 
you know, it just, it, it weighs on you, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and think about it even in a corporate setting, you know, amongst brothers or, in, as you would say, amongst brothers and sisters, um, you know. <laughs> or saints, whatever. Or saints, you know. <laughs> and if you just let that sit in a congregation, right? Um, the the stress, the mm-hmm. uh, really, really fracturing that it brings to the fellowship, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it, it's not surprising, I suppose, if you just stop and think about it. But but we forget about, you know, actually we need to deal with that because uh, the Lord deal has, you know, he's dealt with it. He died for that. Right? Yeah. So let's not let it sit or let right. the sleeping dog or let the sun go down on our anger or all the ways that we've talked about. That's that. a great analogy, actually. Focus on the breaking of the bread. And the prayer is not on breaking your body. That is the church. <laughs> or breaking each other. Yes. Right, exactly. Yeah. That, yeah, when you're focused on the breaking of the bread and the prayers, there's koinonia because you're gathered around the body mm-hmm. who is your savior Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. Mm. Turn away from that and you end up starting to break. You try and break each other. You break. You fracture the congregation. You fracture families. You fracture that fellowship, which as Paul points out in so many of his letters, that's basically opening the front door of the fort and letting the enemy in. Right. Now, I do think it's worth noting, as Ehler uh, is really leading us to think about, that often the reason why folks will not participate together you know, mm-hmm. around, around the sacrament of the altar is because they actually don't believe the same thing. Right. Uh, even, even if they hold to the same external mm, membership, congregational mm-hmm. membership. Yeah, that, they're politically together. Right. They belong to the same polity, but do they really belong to the church? And you find out that, no, I don't need to reconcile with my brother before I go mm-hmm. to the sacrament. Never mind what the Bible says, because X, Y, Z. And I'm like, so you don't actually believe what the Bible right. says. Right. Right. Yeah. And to that point, maybe that's, well, I would argue that is, not maybe, but that is when the pastor has to lead from the front. He's got to be the one that stands up first and says, I'm going to take ownership of this. Here's where I've messed up. Here's where I've sinned against you. Here's where I repent and need to receive forgiveness from you. Yeah. Set the table that way, so to speak, so that other people see that and go, oh, well, if pastor can do it, I can do it. I know. But the vulnerability of that, I mean, it can be the end of your ministry in some cases. It can be. Yeah. And, but, but it's not on you. I mean, that, that's the other <laughs> exactly. aspect of that. I mean, right. The only reason... If, if it is a faithful fellowship of, of Christians gathered around the Lord's body and blood, then the Spirit will work repentance and, yes. and for the forgiveness of sins. I mean, that, right. that's what he's promised to do. That's, that is the fruit of the cross, right? Right, right. And so what are you so terrified about? You know, well, it might get uncomfortable <laughs> for a while. <laughs> that's right. He might find out you're actually a sinner. Oh, and that there's others around you too. And there's other sinners surrounding you. Right. Oh, it's a mess. No, it's wonderful. So that brings us to the end of our hour with you this week. We, I think, will probably end up going back into Alert That's for the next talk, week or two or till we're done talking about this. Uh, Pastors Gillespie and Riley, I would say our piety is what could be defined as thoroughly sacramental piety. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you and I definitely have a lot to say on this topic. Well, and I, like I said, I, I have a hard time communicating about it because I think in one sense, I have kind of a simple approach, right? It's to mm-hmm. say, Jesus said, so that's what I want to do, right? Right. You know, as pastor, he says, take bread and say this and take take a cup and say this for the forgiveness yeah. of sins. And that's what right. we do. And uh, I look, you know, like you Keep said, Acts simple. 2, 242, right? It's right there. That's what they did. They broke bread yeah. daily in, in their homes, right? Yeah. Um, And we would say in our church, which is our home and, right. as a tribe. Well what's wrong with that? Why can't we just do that? 
Yes. Then, then there's reasons. Right. It's simple. We just make it complicated. Yeah. Then there's reasons. And then we get into, you know, the, uh, we talked about before the show, the accrual of, oh, I don't know, ideas, practices, mm-hmm. policies, um, traditions. And right. It's hard to sift through all of that mm-hmm. and get back to kind of the, the root, really. Yeah. The heart of it. Right. Yeah. What does the scripture say? How is, and how is that uh, expressed? Right. In the first four centuries of the church. So that's right. why this book for me is so. Um, I know it's, it's a wonderful revisit. 100%. Yeah. yeah. And as always, we thank you so much for all that you do to support our show and everything that is produced by Higher Things. Go check out the website and everything else. And uh, we love you. And so see you next week. Peace.